I want to start a new series today, and I want to launch off from the final verses at the end of Acts 2. The book of Acts lays out the history of the early church, how the church began after Jesus had died, resurrected from the dead, and then commissioned his followers to become people who carried his message into the world. And it started off in an extraordinary way on a particular day called the Day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell on God's people and they began to preach about Jesus. And Peter has just preached the first sermon really about the risen or resurrected Lord Jesus to the very people who had uh, been present in Jerusalem when Jesus was put to death. And an extraordinary thing has happened in that those very same people have turned radically to believe in Jesus even though only a matter of weeks before, they had been calling for his death. And so at the end of this first chapter, as it were, in terms of the life of the church, Luke, who writes the book, gives us a window into the condition or the situation of what the church was like at that time. And these particular verses that I want to read to you at the end of this chapter have been really formative for me in helping shape what I understand God's passion and vision for His church, what it ought to be, what it ought to strive to become by the power and the grace of God. Because in reality, churches differ wildly in terms of the experience of what church feels like on the ground. They differ wildly in terms of the things that they count as important, the things they are committed to, even just their rhythms and practices But the New Testament lays out for us a really clear vision of what God's church is meant to be. And the desire ought to be in our hearts that as we journey together, we're striving to become the kind of church that God wants us to be by the power that he enables in us so that we can glorify Jesus in a world that's dark, essentially, and needs the light that he gives. So let me read to you these verses. And I want, in the coming weeks, to to draw out what I think are eight features of um, the early church, which I think we need to run towards. So let's read from verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want to ask the question as we open up, what are the marks? What do you suppose are the marks of a church that's expressing radical devotion to God? What do you think are the essentials, the, the elements that you cannot remove from the life of the church if it's to be a church that's full of desire and passion and radical devotion to the living God? And I think this is what this chapter or this section of the chapter opens up for us. And one of the things that will strike you when you start to think about what Luke is describing here is actually just how ordinary the practices of the early church were. 
even as something very extraordinary is happening in that Jerusalem is being shaked by this new community. And soon the surrounding regions will be shaked. And in the coming centuries, the entire world would be shaked by it. And yet the very things they're doing are quite simple and quite ordinary. I want us to think about the what and the why just briefly. As I mentioned, in terms of the what, there's nothing bizarre really. And it seems to me that there's enormous power in the church committing itself or herself to doing the ordinary things with consistency and faithfulness and devotion in a way that can be described as plodding. One of the the great um, men of, of recent history in terms of the scope of history, I suppose, not that recent. He lived in the kind of 19th century. But William Carey was the father of the modern missions. The man shook the nation of India through his commitment to spread the gospel there. And he particularly devoted himself to the translation of the scriptures from the original languages into the various dialects of regions of India. And of course, there are an unbelievable number of languages there, but in his lifetime, he and his team managed to uh, translate either the whole Bible or portions of the Bible into over 40 languages. And he said that the secret to his success, as it were, was that he knew how to plod. That he just knew how to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And so when you consider the ordinariness of the early church, I think it strikes me that you have to be committed to doing the ordinary things well. And that you have to be committed to doing them faithfully and consistently. Because in fact, a lot of people these days are looking for some new and extraordinary way of uh, impacting the world or growing the church. And very often in the process, ignoring the very basic foundational elements of what makes church church. So in terms of the what of, their, of what they're doing, I think that nothing will strike you as particularly odd. But maybe we need to understand a little bit of the why. Because... We have to understand why these ancient practices were and are so potent in the life of the church, why they're so powerful, why they're so pregnant with the ability to transform and change lives. I think there's a bit of a hunger in the modern age to reach back to old things that seem to have worked for centuries, even as we've experimented with many new things. Sometimes people rediscover the old things. I recently begun making kefir. Do you know what kefir is? It's fermented milk that comes from the Caucasus region. And it's supposed to have all these health benefits. Totally unproven, but some of us believe in those kinds of things. And of course, it's an ancient practice to ferment milk in this way, to drink it daily. Uh, Mine tastes more like cheese than anything particularly appetizing, but I'm working on it. I can't really sense any of the health benefits as yet, but... I believe in the power of consistency and applauding, so we'll get there at some point. It seems to me that, that there's no need to reinvent church. There's no need to do anything new and unusual and weird. But rather, we need to rediscover the ancient practices and be a people who, as one people, are committed to walking in them. Because one of the things, did you notice this word in verse 43, where Luke says that awe came upon Every soul. Awe came upon every soul. A sense of wonder, a sense of amazement, a sense of reverence, a sense of 
hearts beating and aflame with a passion for the living God. And all he said up to that point is that they were devoted to teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. We need to rediscover these things and understand why we're doing them. Understand what it is that we do and commit ourselves afresh to them. So this morning what I want to do is open up to you what I think is the first mark of the early church and its practices. And what is it that Luke mentions first? He says, first of all, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I think the first element, ingredient, or mark of the church that it was radically devoted to God And in fact, I think it's listed first because of its place of priority and importance in the life of the community, was that they were committed to hearing God. Above everything else, they were committed to a man. Every single one of them in this community that has become thousands were committed in their heart to hearing God. They were devoted, he says, to the apostles' teaching. Now, I know that even before we sort of open up what that means in practice and what that looks like, I know that many people today, and perhaps some of you, would struggle with the idea of being devoted and committed to, essentially, to this book and to what it contains and the teaching that's therein. And for many reasons, but I think, let me just name a couple of them. One of them is, of course, that for many of you, you may, or some of you, you may struggle with the idea that It's hard for us, how can we know, how can we possibly know that what's in the Bible is true? That it lives up to what it claims for itself, that this is a book that has revealed the mind and the heart of God. I think that that seed of doubt must rest in the minds of many Christians, because otherwise you would see a great deal more devotion and commitment to hearing the voice of God in the Scriptures, wouldn't we? If you ask yourself, why is it that we sometimes show um, a lack of passion or a lack of commitment to hearing God and His Word. I think that for some, it's because at the root of it all, there's the question, well, has God really spoken and is this it? Now, how could the early church have known that God had spoken and was speaking to them through the apostles, which, of course, is the record that we have in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible? I think that that question particularly is one that people struggle with today. In fact, I think we're becoming more sensitive to that question because we live in a day and an age where people are sensitized to the problem of any person wanting to set themselves up as an authority or a voice to others, especially in the internet age. And we become skeptical of authority. We become skeptical of anyone claiming that they know more than us. We recognize that any other person, you know, any celebrity can set themselves up as a great dietitian and offer dietary advice, drink kefir for your health, this kind of thing. And this kind of thing is widespread in the modern age, and we've developed a cynicism and a skepticism to anyone who claims to know, who claims to authority. Experts are not trusted. And of course, that seeps into our approach to the claim for revelation, particularly in the holy books, and particularly in the Bible, I think, in the Western age, where there's a bit of a backlash to Christianity. And if you were to ask the question, well, how how did these people feel that they knew that God was speaking to them, such that they could devote their entire lives to what they were hearing? The simple answer 
that's given here, and of course there are many other answers, but the simple answer that's given here is what we see in verse 43, that it says many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In other words, as they were speaking the words of God as Christ had given to them, God was verifying this revelation through the miraculous. And when you read the Bible, you see that this pattern is repeated again and again. Whenever God is wanting to demonstrate in a fresh way that he has spoken, one of the things he does is he, he verifies it through signs and seals through the miraculous. In fact, miracles are often called signs in the Bible. And they are called that for a reason. Because they're, they're pointing to something. But the particular thing that they're typically pointing to is the fact that God has spoken. Or else how would we know it's him? If you're familiar with the story of Moses, for example, called as a shepherd in the wilderness, and he hears God speak to him to go back into Egypt and to see God's people delivered from slavery in Egypt and brought into their inheritance, the land of Canaan. And the question that he has, it's burning in his heart, is how will they know that I've heard from you? How will they know that you've spoken to me? And so God enables him to perform a sequence of miracles to make it evident to Pharaoh that the words that Moses is speaking are the words of God. You see it again later in the lives of some of the prophets, particularly Elijah and Elisha. Two individuals who seem to be in a nation that is predominantly walked away from God, but because they stand as unique individuals speaking prophetically the word of God, to call people back from abandonment of their faith and the turning over of worship to idols, God seals their words and their preaching by the ability to perform miracles. You see it most importantly in the life of Jesus, don't you? Here is a man who, in a roundabout way, but in a way that often calls for people to claim to to accuse him of blasphemy, he is making the claim that he is the son of God repeatedly, numerous times through the gospels and in his preaching. Now any one of us could stand up and make that claim. But C.S. Lewis remarked, most people would be considered to be on the level of a poached egg in terms of their understanding and their rationality if they stood up and made that claim. Typically you only find such people in asylums, in psychiatric wards. So what was it that convinced people that the words that Jesus was speaking were true, that his identity was genuine? Convinced them to the point where some of these very men who turned their lives over to him were willing to then die for the cause that he preached. What convinced them was the great power that rested on his life, that he was able to perform miracles by his own authority. And of course, the ultimate miracle that he was raised from the dead which shattered any remaining doubts or fears that they had about giving their lives entirely to this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now these very same men stand up and they begin to preach a message to the nation of Israel which is designed to go global. And the way that God seals their words, the signs that accompany them is the miraculous. So friends, We don't rest on any other testament than that today. The reason we believe this book is because rational people wrote it and they wrote of the extraordinary things that happened 
when people preach the revelation of God. That's one of the reasons we read this book. There are others. Another objection you might have, though, and I think this is even more pointed in this day and age, is how can we trust an old and outdated book, it would seem? A book that seems sort of out of time, anachronistic with our age. I think we've lived in... Recent decades have been the most experimental in the history of the human race, haven't they? In terms of the speed of change in society and the kind of underlying assumption that drives that change, which is that new is good and old is bad. That traditions are shackles that bind you and that in order to experience fullness of life, we have to cast off restraints that have been passed on through generations, and walk into whatever freedom you define for yourself. That's, I think, in many ways, the way you can capture the spirit of our age. And it's quite a unique thing in the history of the world, and certainly has come from the West in particular. And at this day and age, to call people back to a book that was written by, for one thing, entirely by men, which is probably in and of itself an offensive reality, written by men, spanning a couple of millennia, but also a couple of millennia ago, representing values and aims and desires that seem so much out of sync with what we want and what we believe is fullness of life in the modern age. How can we reasonably, rationally, without embarrassment, commit ourselves wholeheartedly not only to reading the book but to putting it into practice in our day-to-day lives. How can we do that without blushing? If you're a Christian, you've been tempted to blush, haven't you, at times? Maybe you have. At the things which you're called to defend, the beliefs and opinions which you're called to defend before a world which scoffs and laughs and cannot understand why we still believe such things. And I think this is a difficult question to answer. I can't hope to do it justice just in this moment. But I would would want to provoke you with just a couple of thoughts. I'm not sure that I have a right to reject this. Unless I feel that I know more. Unless I feel perhaps that I know everything. Unless I feel that the knowledge I have is somehow superior to what has stood the test of the centuries, impacting and changing lives over millennia. I think it is particularly the arrogance of the modern age that we think we know better than tried and tested words and ideas and life-giving, freeing power that's come through this book to many, many millions and even now billions of people. I'm not sure that I have a right to reject it purely on the basis of my own opinion, my own authority. And certainly it would be very closed-minded of me to do so. Unless, of course, I can look at my opinions if they're formed by the day in which I live and say that everything that we, we know and practice today works. We've got it figured out. I think if you could honestly look at this age we live in and say that in every respect, the world is better, people are happier, people are more fulfilled, people are more spiritually enlightened and 
and happy and content, if you could honestly say all of those things, then maybe we'd have cause to reject the past. But if there's even a seed of doubt, that maybe we've made one or two mistakes along the way, maybe we're not quite sure in this kind of anthropological test tube of an age that we live in about what is true and what isn't true, then maybe we need to practice what this age preaches and have a little bit of open-mindedness when we come to the Scriptures. So what I want to do is make for you a case about why we need to be devoted to the Word of God. And the first thing I think we need to do is look at it in the negative. And consider starvation from the Word. What happens to people when the Word of God, the revelation of God, is withheld or withdrawn or neglected in the life of the community, particularly the community of the church? What happens to people when it is absent, when it's ignored, when it's deliberately disobeyed or neglected? In order to understand that, I think you've got to first understand how the Word, the Bible, the Scriptures, the revelation of God is, how its benefit as it's described in the Bible to humankind. One of the ways that the Bible describes itself is as something nourishing, as something life-giving to people. Very often the, the, the image that's used is of physical nourishment, of food and of water. I think that's probably the, the best way we can understand what this book does to us, even on a spiritual level. One of the places that you see this, I think probably the most impressive place, is in the life of Jesus himself. When Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to go and experience temptations from Satan, do you remember how Satan, he's been fasting for 40 days, and Satan tells Jesus, why don't you just turn the stones into bread and eat them? The way Jesus answers is to quote a verse from the Old Testament. He says to him that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, to be nourished by God's word is more important to me than to be nourished by physical food. And I find that particularly impressive because this is Jesus speaking. You would think of all the people who've ever lived, if there was anyone who didn't need to read the Bible, it would be that man. He is described as the revelation of God in person, in the flesh. He's called the Word. He, is, he embodies the revelation of God because when you look at him, you see God. You see the face of God. No one more perfectly represented who God is to us than Jesus. So in that sense, he's the living embodiment of Scripture. And yet he still says that in order to survive moment by moment, he needs the Word of the Father in his heart and in his spirit. Jesus grew up as a boy reading the Scriptures, memorizing portions of them, understanding them, wrestling with them. It's one of the earliest cameos we have of his life as a little boy is when he's 12 years old. And he disappears. His mom and dad suddenly realize that he's missing. And they go back and look for him, and they find him with the old men debating the meaning of Scripture. At 12 years of age. And I love that image because one of the things it shows to us is that Jesus didn't learn by any extraordinary means. He learned by devotion to reading and grappling and wrestling with the Bible because it was food for his soul. And what does Luke tell us about this boy as he grew up? He says that he grew up in wisdom and in stature 
and in favor with God and man. In other words, as he grew up to understand and wrestle with the meaning of the word, his whole being grew up into manhood. Not just physically, but in his mind and in his spirit, he grew up to become an able man. The picture is given in the first psalm, where the psalmist asks, what kind of a person prospers? And he says, the person who prospers in life is the one who's like a tree planted by streams of water. And he's describing the image of somebody whose roots go into the scriptures, go into the word of God, and from which they draw nourishment. It's the same image of food. Because he says that such a person will bear fruit in season and out of season. All year long, they experience fruitfulness in their lives. Their leaves are green. Their fruit is constant because the roots are in the streams of, the, of, of God's revelation, of what God has said to us. It's an image of nourishment that comes through the Bible. The flip side to it that Psalm tells us is that when you're not like that, your life becomes like chaff, the kind of husk around a grain of wheat, which is dry and lifeless, and which is carried by the wind, which is an image of the kinds of people we've become when all of our opinions and beliefs and convictions are shaped by the spirit of the age. When everything that you believe is merely an echo or a mirror of the age in which you live, then really the best picture that the Bible gives of you is that you're like chaff. You're like a husk of wheat that's just blown along by winds of the current age. Of course, those winds change. They change constantly. We think that we, we're going this way. We're going this way. Yes, this is truth. This is truth. And then whoop, we've done a U-turn. We suddenly believe this is true. This is true. And we preach it. And we label everyone else a bigot who doesn't believe it. And the Bible says that's, that's how to live a meaningless life. Divorce from ancient truths. Divorce from what God has spoken. All the way through the Bible, we get this image of the Bible being like nourishment to our spirits and to our souls. In Isaiah 55, it's put like this. He says, if you're thirsty, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So he's saying, if you have some kind of spiritual yearning, there's an opportunity for you to come and eat and to come and drink. And then he tells us what that means. He says, listen diligently to me and eat what's good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. It's there again. The picture is that a person whose life has become spiritually dry, meaningless, futile, and empty is a person who needs nourishment, who needs food and drink. And the particular thing that they need is to open their ears to hearing God, maybe for the first time. In the New Testament, the way Peter describes this, he says that like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And the milk he means there is the truth, the word of God, the gospel. Milk is the substance that makes baby mammals grow. It's a picture of the most nourishing fat-laden, protein-rich substance that will make you grow quickly and eventually make you grow fat if you have too much of the stuff. 
but it will nourish you and strengthen you. And a number of times in the Bible, the, the Bible itself is described as being like milk to the soul. Rich, full of vitamins. And I guess the point is that you can't get spiritually strong any other way. There's no shortcut. There's no way around it. You have to hear God, do. Hear and do. Hear and do. So then what happens when you stop eating food? Think about the process of starvation in your physical body. The first step is usually a kind of low glucose levels. The kind of sugars that are rushing around in your system begin to drop. Many of you experience being hangry in those moments. So you're both hungry and angry. It's been my prevailing sin since I've been very young. But it's a picture, isn't it? That first stage when people are not being nourished daily by the Word of God and their life isn't full of the things of God and they are not listening to God, the first thing that happens is that you emotionally become unstable in your faith. You lose your joy. You lose your passion. It might only be a momentary thing. But you've all experienced it, haven't you? When your, your mind and your heart aren't on the nourishment in that day, the daily need for the Word of God, the first thing you experience is emotional fluctuations in your relationship to God, just like hunger. The next stage in starvation is, is that you begin to metabolize your fat stores in your body. Contrary to what many people say and believe today, fat is a very good thing. I believe in that wholeheartedly with full conviction. <laughs> Fat is a good thing because it is designed by God to, as a store. Lest you skip meals, lest you ever end up missing food for longer than that. But of course, a person who runs on those reserves for a while will eventually run out. And so that's an image of the person who, whose life is, is separated from hearing God eventually your stores begin to run low, don't they? The things that you thought you knew become a little bit more hazy, a little bit more doubtful, or a little bit less sure in your mind, and you begin to run out of reserves. You feel spiritually sapped. The next thing that happens in physical starvation is that you lose muscle mass. Your body begins to digest and break down your muscles because it needs energy from somewhere. Therein is a picture again of the person who has going, gone for a season without listening to God. Eventually, whatever strength you had spiritually begins to erode. You no longer stand firm like the scriptures tell us. But you begin to wobble. You grow weak. You grow frail. Small things can knock you off course. Temptations pull you to the left and to the right. You have no stature. You have no strength. There's no robustness to your spiritual life. And eventually, starvation gives way usually to disease and, and then death. Usually, people who starve are killed by diseases because they have no means by which to fight them any longer. And it's the image of the person who eventually, who's cut off from the Word of God, the starvation from the Word eventually leads to that same kind of spiritual death, doesn't it? Where anything, any, even a small thing, like the equivalent, spiritually speaking, of a common cold can kill you. A single doubt a single temptation can totally erode whatever spiritual life seemed to be there at one point. And this process is invariably followed by somebody whose life is cut off from listening to God. How does it happen? How do we allow ourselves to get into that state? 
How does it happen to whole churches as well as to individuals? It has happened. You look broadly across the situation in our country, and what do you see? You see people with very little hunger for the word, even the people who are going to church. One of the great complaints about Bishop Michael Curry's sermon at the wedding was that it was 12 minutes. That's like half an episode of a sitcom, isn't it? And that's too much. Now, whether you think he was preaching the word of God or not is up to you to decide. But in any case, it's an evidence of people's total lack of of desire and appetite to, to listen to what God is saying. And that, that, that problem has come from all kinds of sources and roots in the lives of churches. Why churches are emptying, generally speaking, in the West. It's where there is no sustenance from the Word of God. It comes about through neglect, where for whatever reasons we're just lazy or, or complacent with the Bible. It comes about through distortion. Frequently in, in the New Testament, we're warned about how easily God's revelation can be distorted by people with a particular agenda or think they've got new ideas from God. And all through, you can trace it, you read the history books of the church, all through the history of the church, you have a a thread of faithfulness with people who believe the truth about God as he's spoken it. But then from that thread, that that river, you have many, many um, sort of offshoots or off streams or whatever you wanted to call them of people who've gone to the left or to the right and, and gone into weird places. You know, even like, the more extreme examples of you've seen images of people in some parts of the world who flagellate themselves at Easter and whip themselves to, to, to sort of relive the, the, the sufferings of Jesus, which, you know, I don't know where that comes from. Well, you've got the guys in America who handle snakes and allow snakes to bite them because they've taken one verse completely ripped it out of context and think that this is evidence of God's favor on them. You've got all kinds of weirdness. You've got cults. You've got Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons who trace some of their lineage to the Bible, but they've gone off on some crazy tangent with multiple wives and all kinds of weirdness. And it always comes in through distortion. There's compromise is another thing. I think that's particularly evident these days. If the spirit of the age is so forcefully moving in this direction, it becomes harder and harder to remain tethered to ideas that were taught centuries ago or millennia ago And we begin to weigh up, well, maybe we can just shift a little bit on this or on that. But before long, we've given away the very foundations upon which we stand, and our whole spiritual life is adrift. And that happens to whole churches. Another huge thing which brings about this kind of starvation from the word is pragmatism. Just the sheer desperation to create results, to to please people, to even to entertain people so that they'll come back through the doors. People think, well, you know, people are a bit tired of this. You know, we don't want this so much. So we try other things to make church a little bit more jazzed up. The irony is that even if it works for one generation, the children always walk away because they think, what is this? It's less entertaining than me going to other things. So please don't compete on that level. Inevitably, churches die when they go down any of these roads. And you see the same history playing its way out in the Bible itself when God God's word is being neglected. You see it again and again. The book of Judges is a depressing book, I think. Because the book of Judges tells the story of God's people who've been given the law and they've been given a home, the land of Canaan, or now Israel. 
and then they forget everything, essentially. It's like God doesn't exist at moments in that book. And they go through these successive cycles where it says, God raises up for them a deliverer, a man or a woman who is of extraordinary spiritual stature to lift them out of their disasters that they keep walking into. And then they just walk into another one. And the refrain that goes throughout that whole book is that each man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, his opinions, thoughts, ways of thinking were completely divorced from what God had spoken to them in his law. And what happens when everyone does what's right in their own eyes is the same kind of things we see today, cultural and societal experimentation. No absolutes, no morals, no absolute truths to, to, to bind us, and to keep us tethered to what is the good and the true and the right. And then you end up with stories of you know, their equivalent of hashtag me too with rapes. And you end up with stories of horrific murdering and pillaging and, and just terrible things. Just like we're taking the lives of millions of unborn babies today. You think, well, is our age any, is it that much different from what they were doing? Are we that much less barbar- barbaric? I'm not so sure. When God is reflecting on one particular episode or phase in the life of Israel. He speaks to one of the kings of Israel, a man called Asa, and explains what's gone wrong in the life of, the, of, of God's people at that time. And he says, for a long time, this is God speaking, he says, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. Can you see how God's saying those two things go together in the life of the community? When the teaching is diminished, neglected, and then forgotten, Whatever God you thought you worshipped becomes a different God. Because the only way you can know and experience the reality of the true God is by listening to how he has communicated himself to us through his word. And the minute that word is abandoned, you become an idolater. And God says, this is what's happened in the life of my church. That's starvation from the word. Then the Bible tells us another story of resurrection by the word. All through the Bible, you see how the word can bring life from death. What looks like a totally barren and hopeless situation, when God begins to speak and breathe his word into the life of the church again, it comes to life in new ways. And we should have guessed this is how God works, because the first verses of the Bible tell us about the earth being formless and void, and then God speaking, let there be light, let there be animals, let there be humans. And he speaks life. And his words bring about the very thing that they articulate or utter. They're performative. They have power in and of themselves to accomplish what they're sent out to do. When God speaks, it happens. In the life of Israel, when God calls Israel and then gives them his word, his revelation, his law, as a guide by which to live, Moses says to them, these words are life to you. The word of God is life to the community. If they want to remain sustained and alive, they have to be listening to God consistently. There's an extraordinary image in the book of Ezekiel where another one of those episodes has happened in the life of the community where Israel basically has abandoned God and as a result, they've ended up being in exile and basically the nation has more or less died. It doesn't exist in whatever form it was supposed to exist. There are are refugee people 
They have no real meaningful relationship with God anymore. God hasn't forgotten them, but by all intents and purposes, they are dead. And there's a chapter in the book of Ezekiel where God takes Ezekiel out into a valley. I think it's an image. I don't think it's a literal thing. I think it's, it's kind of in a vision. I'm not quite sure. But it says, he brought him out in the spirit of the Lord and set him in the midst of a valley. And the valley's full of bones. It's like all through the valley, you can just see all these dead bones. And God tells Ezekiel what to do. He says, prophesy to the bones that they may live. In other words, speak, speak words. And when he begins to speak God's word to the bones, the bones start clattering together into forming into skeletons and then flesh and tendons are layered on those skeletons and then an entire people comes alive. It's the most extraordinary image of what happens when God's word begins to thunder amongst the people and resurrection happens even despite starvation and death. And you see this pattern being played out again and again through the Bible. The only way God resurrects people is by his spoken word. Jesus says it about his own preaching. He says, my words are life. The weird thing is, when he says that at the end of John 6, he said it just after people have listened to his words and abandoned him en masse. He tells them some pretty horrific teaching about, you need to, if you want life, you need to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And they don't understand. They think he's advocating some kind of weird cannibalism. And thousands of them just walk away from him. And Jesus, you know, in that moment, he chooses that moment to announce, my words are life. And he's saying, you, you don't listen to me and you'll, you'll wander off into bypaths, meadows, and valleys of death. But when you listen to me, you know life. And Peter says to him, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. How does God speak this resurrection life to people, to individuals? How does he speak it to you? How does he speak it to whole churches and communities, even if they've been teetering on the edge of death? How does he do it? I think the two main means that God's used through history, the first is through reading the written word. And I don't want to in any way downplay the power and importance of that. So many stories of that through history. I think about one of the greatest, most influential Christians in history was an African man called Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. He grew up in North Africa. He was a, a man who lived a very wayward lifestyle. Even by the standards of his own day, he was... He, he slept with multiple people. He just gave himself entirely to his desires and appetites and lusts. And we know all this because he wrote a book about it. He was very open. He wrote really the first autobiography that I know of in the history of the world. It's quite an amazing book called His Confessions. He talks about how his life was just full of this searching for spiritual fulfillment. It's an amazing thing to read. You think, well, people haven't changed much, have they, in the last 1,600 years since he wrote it? And he describes this episode in his life when he's wrestling with his spiritual yearning. And he's really beginning to cry out to God. God's kind of waking him up, I suppose. And in, wherever he is, he hears this, this boy singing a rhyme that he's never heard before. And the rhyme has these words, take up and read, take up and read. It's a weird rhyme, isn't it? And uh, never heard a boy singing that. And uh, he... He goes into a part of the house and he finds 
the book of Romans, one of Paul's letters written a few centuries before. Probably the most influential portion of the Bible ever of all the Bible and the most powerful and the one that's had the biggest impact on human history. And in reading it, he comes to a particular verse about forsaking kind of sinful ways, I suppose. Things that just living for your bodily desires and instead putting on, as the scriptures describe it, putting on Christ, which is to say, I clothe myself with this life that, that Jesus has given me. And he says, as he read those words, he says, no further would I read, nor needed I, for instantly at the end of this sentence, by a light, as it were, of serenity infused into my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And the man who was going that way with his life did a radical U-turn and became this unbelievably influential man in history, a theologian. He's had the biggest impact, I think, of pretty much any Christian who's lived since Bible times. It was through reading, through reading the Bible. There's an amazing story of the man John Wesley. John Wesley was the most committed, zealous young man who started a little club at the Oxford University in the 1700s called the Holy Club. And he, he was, his life was all about obedience. I need to figure out how to please God with my life and obey him. But the trouble was he didn't really know Jesus. All he knew was law. If I follow these steps, then, then I'll be the most zealous person. And the whole club, was, you know, because when you have a dynamic personality, often you can infect others with that. And the, these, these guys all became like this in their way of thinking. They were nicknamed the Methodists because they followed a particular method of growing in holiness. And, uh, but John Wesley wasn't saved. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't know the love of God in his heart. He didn't know the forgiveness of, of God in his heart. He didn't know grace. He didn't know the fact that Jesus has died for your sins so that you don't need to earn salvation. He didn't understand that. And one day, as you do, him and his mates are reading Luther's introduction to his commentary on the book of Romans. That's what they did in those days. And uh, somebody's reading out Luther's introduction. And I, I've never read it myself, the introduction to the commentary on the book of Romans by Martin Luther, but it must be powerful because he says in that moment, through the reading and the explanation of the scriptures, John Wesley says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. You can see the place in London where, where this took place, on Aldersgate Street. And as his heart was warmed, he finally understood what Jesus has done for him, how his whole salvation is a gift, that it's a gift to you free by grace. And he and his friends became the most radical preachers who've ever lived, preaching to tens of thousands of people. And it was all through this reading. I could tell you more stories, but I need to move on. Desperately need to move on. <laughs> Partly it's through reading. The other thing the Bible tells us is it's through preaching. And really this is where, you know, the pointedness of what I'm trying to help you see. When it says that the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, you've got to understand that what it meant in practice was that they were committed to hearing God speak to them through weekly or daily teaching and preaching. Because back then, of course, nobody owned their own little Bible or didn't have their pocket Bibles or their apps or their, you know, if you the nearest equivalent to a pocket Bible was a cupboard full of scrolls. 
and very, very expensive ones at that. So you had to be pretty wealthy to own even one of them. So no one had that stuff. So the way that they accessed God speaking was through listening to preachers explain and expound and open up the Word of God. And here's the extraordinary thing. I could demonstrate if I had the time, I'll show you scriptures that show you that in the, in the New Testament, to hear preaching is to hear Christ himself. And it's not to make a claim about the preacher that there's something extraordinary about them, not at all. I think anybody, in a sense, in one sense, can, can stand up and preach. It's more to make a claim about how Jesus has decided to make himself heard. He's decided to make himself heard through the declared, proclaimed, explained word of God through the mouth of preachers. It's an amazing thing. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why when the Reformation happened, which of course is 500 or so years ago, the Catholic Church used to only read and preach the Bible in Latin, so no one understood what it was. One of the great transformations that happened at that time when the Protestant church was birthed was that they began preaching in the known languages and reading the Bible in the known languages. And the church service was no longer about the rituals, the smells, the altar, the kind of partaking of those practices in a mindless way. It became about hearing God speak primarily through his word. And the pulpits were moved from the side into the center. Churches were redesigned. They were painted white. They covered up all the icons. They wanted simplicity and clarity of focus. The church is now primarily about hearing God speak through the preached word of God. And men like Cal- Calvin, raised up, who every single day in his church in Geneva, he would open up the Bible and teach during the lunch hour and a couple of times on Sunday. I really question that man's work ethic. But um, they... This was how whole cities and nations were transformed. And friends, what I'm trying to help you to see is that when God raises up new voices within communities, within cities, within nations to start preaching God's word, resurrection happens. There's an amazing story in the book of Nehemiah. God's people have been in exile. They've been spiritually dead. Miraculously, they're brought back to the land again. Seems to happen repeatedly in Israel's history, doesn't it? But they're brought back to the land. And of course, because they've been away from God all this time, nobody's heard any teaching from the Bible at all. They found these scrolls, and Ezra, who's one of the priests, has committed himself to studying the scrolls, studying the law. And there's an occasion in the book of Nehemiah when all these people are gathered together to hear them read from the scroll. And a number of men are given the job of explaining what they're reading, a preaching, essentially. It's the first example of what we would call a kind of expository preaching. Read the line, explain the line. Read the line, explain the line. And as this preaching is taking place, a heaviness descends on all the, the many hundreds or thousands of people there who are gathered in Jerusalem that day. The heaviness of heart descends when they hear God speaking to them for the first time, essentially. They begin crying. Not just crying, but weeping. You know, that heaving, weeping. When people are cut to the heart and they realize how far they've been away from God. And Nehemiah has to chastise them. Because he says, no, this isn't a day for weeping. This is a day for rejoicing. (laughs) Because now, essentially, he's saying we're hearing God for the first time. And he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy comes when you hear God speak to you for the first time. 
Resurrection happens. People come alive from the dead. They come alive spiritually for the first time. It's what's happened in the book of Acts just before these verses we read. Peter has just preached to the thousands. And they've asked, what must we do to be saved? And he said to them, he said to them the most direct and offensive things possible. Save yourselves, he said to them, from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. They decide there and then, they come alive. This resurrection happens in their hearts. And they hear Jesus for the first time. They hadn't heard him. All those times they'd heard him preach, they hadn't really heard him. And now Peter's preaching Jesus, and Jesus decides, okay, now you're going to hear. And the Spirit empowers what he's preaching, and resurrection happens. We could go on. I wanted just to very briefly describe to you what I think devotion to the Word looks like practically. I think it first of all looks like giving yourself to committed presence within God's people and at church. I think it's very hard to picture the early church being devoted to the apostles' teaching, but every weekend they were skipping out of town to go and hang out by the beach. Now, I don't want to sound judgmental <laughs> at this point or anything of the kind. I understand London life is challenging, but it seems to me that even Christians have been affected with the idea that work is important. We've got to be here for work, but at the weekend, that's our time. Do you know, if the Bible tells you about anything about your time, it says there's one day of the week which he owns, he possesses, which is special to him. It's called the Lord's Day by John in, in the book of Revelation. What does it mean to let that day belong to him? It doesn't mean that the rest of your life doesn't belong to him. But it does at least mean that if you're committed to the other days doing these things, then we should be even more committed to what God wants of us on that day. And I think it should be part of the commitment of ordinary church going and church membership and commitment to the body of Christ that we make it our aim never as far as it's possible to be away except on those occasions when we're on holiday or so on. I think another thing is to, to be devoted to hearing God is to prepare yourself to hear well. <clears throat> you would not be pleased with me if every Sunday I stood up and said, well, I haven't really prepared anything today, but let's just see what comes out. Let's just go with the flow, shall we? <laughs> You'd be like, wow, we're paying you too much and you're too lazy. I might get fired or worse and you wouldn't come back. That's the reality. And yet, I think many people today think that listening is a, is a passive thing. If preaching is an active thing, listening is a passive thing. Of course, that's not true at all. The Bible says things like this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He says, whenever you hear preaching, you have an active choice. Do you close your heart in hardness? You kind of set up your walls and defensive and your counter arguments and your excuses? Or do you open and soften your heart and listen. Okay, God, what do you want to say to me today? And sometimes the hardening or the softening is not so much about your spiritual state at that time. It's about how much sleep you had the night before. A lot of people underestimate. They think, well, this preach is boring. It's like, well, you only went to bed at two in the morning. You may still be boring, but even so, <laughs> do your part. 
I think hearing is an active thing. You embrace God's word. You pull it into your life. You figure out how to root it in your experience. You listen in. You lean towards and you, you engage. I say a third thing, practically. Don't take notes. Why? Because when you listen to preaching, you're not studying for an exam. If it was about information transfer in and of itself, you wouldn't really need to be here. Preaching is about what God does to you in the moment. Of course, some of it's information, new ways of thinking, but it's primarily about opening your heart out to God's transforming power there and then. Tim Keller uses the phrase of, of God changing you on the spot. I agree with that. I think preaching is meant to actually rewire and reconfigure you in the moment. And it's not just about diligently remembering all the points. In, in some senses, you don't really need to worry about how much you remember. It's about what God is doing in you there and then. I say a fourth thing, take immediate action. If there is sin that needs to be repented of in your life, do it there and then. Call out to God. Ask Him for His help to change. Talk to somebody. Seek prayer. If there are are points of wisdom and application and obedience you need to work into your life, make a plan there and then. It's been said that if you want habits to succeed, the only way to make it happen is to make a very specific plan. You answer the where, when, how questions, and then you'll find that you can walk in new habits. I think the same goes for obedience to God. Remember when Jesus is calling his disciples. He says to them, says to Peter and the fishermen, he says, drop your nets and follow me. They didn't go away from that sermon and think to themselves, what a really interesting and challenging sermon that was today. I'll think about that at some point. They literally were like, dropped their nets, walked away from the boats, and follow Jesus. It was instant. It was committed. It was wholehearted. That's the kind of response God calls for, for good listening to his word. It's there and then. There's no hesitation, no deviation. Straight onto it. Finally, I'd encourage you to let the word dwell in you and in us as a community. The New Testament shows us a picture, and I think this is implicit in what Luke is saying that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That partly it was the broadcast of what the apostles were saying to the people, but then suddenly the word lives in the community. They speak it to one another. They remind one another. They talk about what the things that they are learning and hearing and reading. All through the New Testament, the expectation is that all believers, you could say ordinary believers, though I think we're all ordinary, but you know what I mean. All of us are called to speak God's word to one another. Teach one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, exhort one another. All of these are quotes from the New Testament. Because God's expectation is not so much that you are all passive recipients, a crowd, and that there is a voice to the crowd, but rather that the Word of God comes and inhabits the community and it starts to live in conversation. And there's a little... There's much more of a sense of of all of us inhabiting this. And we create structures to help that. This is why life groups exist. It's to enable the word to live in our conversation, in our community. 
I think it's very hard to know how to do it practically without a commitment to that as a model. But it's not the only thing. This is why we encourage you to jump on board with our community Bible reading, because it's a way of, communi- of doing reading of the Bible together in synchronization, but also of communicating with, about it to one another. These are all just kind of scaffolding around the reality. The reality is letting the Word inhabit us. But these are the structures that we hope will practically help us to do it. So I want to ask you, just simply as I close, do you, do you feel the need to devote yourself afresh to hearing God so that your life is renewed? Shall we pray together? There's a verse in Isaiah which has been really important to me in trying to figure out what church should look like, what matters to God. And God says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What's this house that you would build for me? Speaking of the temple, but we could apply it to the church. What's the place of my rest? He says, all these things my hand has made. In other words, try not to build something for me. Instead, he says, this is the one to whom I will look. In other words, show my favor towards, turn my face towards, lavish my goodness upon. He says, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The kind of heart posture, desire, and attitude God seeks among people is the person who is wholly desiring to listen to God. When God finds such people, he blesses them, uses them, empowers them. They become dynamic agents and catalysts for change in the world, regardless of your calling in life. Can we pray that God will do that in all of us and in us as a community, that it will be an infectious reality for us? Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. Not only in speaking the world into being, but then in calling a people as your own, you did it by your voice. In sealing promises and covenants of relationship with us. You did it by the spoken word. And even now, we are people of a book, people of words. We've experienced power through you speaking. But God, some of us, I'm sure, have grown weary of listening or have turned away through whatever reasons. God, bring us alive again, we pray. I pray where there is spiritual starvation here, bring resurrection, renewal, strength. I pray, Lord, that as a church and as a community, we'd be a people who is inhabited by the Word of God. I pray, Lord, that your power would be unleashed through our understanding and wrestling with the Scriptures. I pray that people will come alive for the first time to know you, to love you, that there be Renewal of faith, where people have been wandering from you for years. The gospel and the message of the Lord Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and risen from the dead so that we could experience life would be the reality, the heartbeat, and the words that bind us together as a community. That like Paul, we'd be able to say, we want to strive to know you, Lord Jesus, through the ways you've spoken to us. So bless us, I pray. Teach us to be good listeners and speakers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.
Amen.